Well, good afternoon. It's lovely to have you here at the CU's Easter service. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Matt, um, and I am on staff at the Christian Union, uh, and I'll usually give the Bible talks at our campus Bible talks on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and so that hasn't changed today. I have the great privilege of, of uh, preaching from 1 Corinthians 15, which Tom just read for us, uh, which hopefully will be enriching for us as we consider um, Easter and head into that particular holiday. Uh, so let me begin by asking the question that was on the, um, the flyers that have been flowing around the campus, uh, which is this question, why is Good Friday good? I don't know whether you've ever asked that question before. Uh, typically, I think Australians, when they hear public holiday, don't ask questions. They just hop in the car and try and get to the beach as soon as they can before everyone else get a park and enjoy the rest of the day. Now, but given that public holidays tend to commemorate and celebrate things of importance... It seems important then for us to understand why Good Friday, this particular Friday, has been labelled good. And it's important because the research seems to show that not every public holiday has been created equal. Now, here are two of the ones that I found of of particular interest. This first one is Turkmenistan. They celebrate Melon Day. Um, Apparently, it is to celebrate the unique taste reminiscent of the fruit of paradise, I've never tasted the fruit of paradise, but apparently the Turkmen's have, and they reckon their melons are pretty close, and so they have a day to celebrate it. Uh, But then there's this one, and it had to be American, Happy National Pig Day. Again, they're setting aside a day to celebrate the noble beast known as the pig. They say that it is to accord the pig its rightful, though generally unrecognised, place as one of man's most intellectual and domesticated animals. There's a public holiday to celebrate. I don't know about you, but I'm not putting good in front of that. There's no good pig day in my book. So why is it then that Easter gets good? And why is it that it doesn't get one public holiday, but two? Now, to understand that, we need to understand something of the Christian message, especially and particularly what it says about the person of Jesus, what he did, why he came. And so to that end today at this Easter service, I want to spend some time with you summarising what Christians call the gospel message. Then I'm going to address some objections, kind of think about it together. And then at the end, prior warning, I'm going to challenge you to respond. Don't do this every week at the CU, but this is a particular time where we will do so. Because Easter, Easter is not just two days off in your calendar. We've got to pretend you don't have 10 hours of lectures to catch up on. Easter actually is of such significance because it commemorates something that happened 2,000 years ago, something that happened to the Lord Jesus, which has implications not just for Christians but for every person in the world. Because what happened when he died and rose again made him Lord, not just of the people out here but the people in here, yourself included. And that means that we need to respond to what happened. So with that in mind, let's turn our attention to the passage that we just looked at. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 8. It was written by a man called Paul. He was an apostle, essentially just a um, a chosen messenger, somebody kind of with the the status to take the Christian message to the world. And he's writing to a bunch of Christians in Corinth. And you'll notice at the very beginning of, of the reading that he wants to remind his readers of the gospel that he preached to them. Things that he says in verse 3 are of first importance. So this is just kind of the peripheral stuff that Christianity teaches. This is the main game. Look at what he says there in verse 3. He says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, 
and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Now, when you look over that list, there's a lot of things going on there, and it's really easy to kind of get stuck in the detail, but really the structure is very simple. You can break it down into two key truths. The first one is in verse 3. Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. And then the second one in verse 4, Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with Scriptures. And everything else that Paul says here hangs off those two truths as sort of like proofs or evidence for those two things happening. Jesus crucified, Jesus resurrected. And if you can understand those two things, then you understand the Christian message. They're at the heart of what it is that Christians believe. And so with that in mind, let's have a look at both of them. Let's have a look at the first one. The first truth, Jesus died for our sins. And this is what we celebrate on Good Friday. And the first thing to understand, therefore, as we celebrate the death of somebody is why they died. It had to do with sins. The Christian gospel is about addressing the problem of sin. Now, sin, we kind of get a bit cagey about that word these days. Sin is a dying word in our society. We have problems. We have mistakes. We have imperfections. We might even go so far as to say that we have done things that are bad, but we aren't sinful. It's not only a religious term, it's a negative term. And it rubs against the prevailing attitude of our society, doesn't it? Because what does our society tell us? It tells us that we are fundamentally good. But all you have to do is look at a child to understand that we are actually all born selfish and self-oriented. You don't have to give them lessons in being self-centered and jealous. That just kind of comes with the factory settings. Uh, I used to be in a church, the minister had, had a daughter, she's much older now, but when she was two, she managed to sneak into his bathroom and found like an expensive bottle of lotion. Uh, I, I don't know, I don't have lotion, um, but, but he did, and she got the bottle and she emptied the bottle down the sink. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, she realised suddenly what she'd done. Uh, he wasn't there at the time, and so she went, I know, as a two-year-old, I'll work out how to turn on the tap, fill the bottle up with water, put the cap back on and put it back into the cupboard and close the door as if nothing had ever happened. Now, she got discovered because she was only two, but that sort of shiftiness you don't teach to people. It came with the settings. Now, and if you don't believe me, I actually want to put something to you this morning. I think you believe this. I think that you believe that fundamentally people are, in essence, bad rather than good. And I want to give you some evidences for it. The evidence is in your pocket. Because what's in your pocket? I think there are two things usually, your phone and your keys. And what do the two things have in common? Locks. Every key in your pocket is evidence that you do not trust humankind. Because you lock everything. You lock your house, you lock your cars, you lock your phones, you lock your diaries. So we're not even locking things that we leave out in public, right? We're locking things in the house, supposedly with the people that we trust most in the world, but we're not going to let them get into our stuff because we know that they can't be trusted. And so I want to suggest then that there's something that sits inside of us that knows that even though people are capable of doing good things, that they can't be given too much freedom, otherwise they're no longer kept in check. What I want to suggest is that what we know intuitively, what we guard against automatically, is what the Bible says explicitly, which is that all people, for all the loving and good things they can do and do do, are by their nature, not just out there but in here, us here, are by their nature bad. 
Now, usually, when people hear that, and they're brave enough to acknowledge that reality, they will then go and say, well, yeah, that, that's, that's okay, fine, that's fair, but I'm not as bad as that person. I actually saw somebody wearing a T-shirt the other day that said, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not like you. Great T-shirt, but can you see the irony of the statement? It's judgmental and it's arrogant. They're the very things that society is saying that we aren't. And what I want to suggest is that we all wear this T-shirt, whether or not we can see it. But it's more than that, I think, too, because the comparison is all wrong. It's easy to find somebody who's badder than you. Congratulations, you're not Hitler, right? But the comparison doesn't work across ways. Sinfulness is not determined by comparing yourself to other people. It's determined by comparing yourself to God, a God who is completely holy, completely perfect, and absolutely good. Uh, Again, in Isaiah chapter 64, we're told that compared to God, our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. And in that comparison, there is absolutely not one of us who will not be found wanting. And to bring this even closer to home, our sinfulness is not just determined by comparison to God. Our sinfulness is determined because it is against God. God demands perfect obedience. Not just in our deeds, but in our commitment to him. For he made us, and he made us to live in his world, in his way. But instead of putting God at the centre, we push God out and we put ourselves in. And that is not a small thing to do to the God who made the universe. Elsewhere in the Bible, in Romans chapter 3, we're told that no one is righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. We have, by the very way that we live our lives, think our thoughts, do our deeds, turned away from God and live life without him, against him. And because of this, God is angry, not just generally, but he's angry at you. This isn't the sort of anger that just kind of like, I'm angry, but I'll cool off. You're like your mum. is like, you just pick up your socks and, and then it comes back and the relationship's sort of okay after a couple of hours. This is the sort of anger that we have at injustice when we see people unfairly treated, when we see people harmed, killed even. It is the measured and resolved decision in anger to bring justice. And what God has decided is that because of the way that we have treated him justly, we are to be punished. The scary, scary, controversial, offensive message that the Christian gospel is based on is this. You are deserving of death and eternal punishment. Not just you, me as well. Every single one of us, because of what we have done or failed to do in pushing God out of the centre. That's an uncomfortable thought, isn't it? But if you don't understand your predicament, then you won't understand Jesus' death and why Good Friday is good. Because if your problem is small, then your Jesus is small and it's not really a big deal. Right? Jesus, he just becomes a good guy, a moral teacher. Maybe he said some useful things we can put in a self-help book. 
ended up getting himself crucified by the Romans because he wasn't a political animal, but you should have been more careful. Uh, and if that's the case, then what happens is Christians just become those annoying moralizers. Don't do this, do that, don't do this. But, but if life is just about living a good life, well, then why do I need Jesus? Because I'm doing pretty good at the moment, right? I haven't broken any laws. I'm, I'm, I'm traveling fine. But what Good Friday tells us is that there is something far graver facing you, something far more urgent. Because if Jesus had to die for sins, that tells us something about the seriousness of our sins, doesn't it? But if you understand the gravity of your sin, then Jesus' death on the cross becomes something entirely different than just a day off during semester. You suddenly see that it has purpose. It is a death for our sins. Jesus is our substitute. He dies in our place. He suffers the penalty for our sin so that we don't have to. And God does this of his own accord. We did nothing to deserve it. And that's what Christians call grace. It's a mercy from God. It's a demonstration of the magnitude that he has for you. The same God that is angry with you is the same God who loves you and sent his son to die for you so that you could be forgiven and freed from his judgment. And that's why Good Friday is called good. Because it frees us from the justice that's coming our way, releases us from the impending punishment of hell and damnation, and instead moves us into a place where God treats us not just as ex-enemies and kind of acquaintances, not just as friends, but as his sons and daughters, people who will receive his blessing from this point on, unto eternity that's the first key truth of the gospel the first part of easter good friday jesus died for our sins the second key truth is just as incredible and this is what we celebrate on resurrection sunday we see it there in verse four it's the second truth he was raised from the dead now i want to let you in a little secret here um if you want to know what the Achilles heel of Christianity is, like if you decided one day you going to woke up and just went, you know what, I don't want to study biology anymore, I'm going to single-handedly take down the Christian faith, obliterate it from the face of the earth, this is how you would do it. You would disprove the resurrection. That's all you need to do. Because everything Christians believe, every confidence we have, everything that we, we kind, of, kind of build upon, this kind of edifice, it's based on this one claim, this one crazy outlandish claim, that Jesus Christ bodily came back from the dead. And the reason that this is so fundamental to the Christian hope is that because if, if God didn't raise him back to life, then we would have no way of knowing whether his death actually achieved the sin-killing deed that he said it did. We would just be probably just another madman with a Messiah complex who got himself killed. We would never know. In fact, the, the writer to the Corinthians says a little bit later on in, in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And again in verse 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, I was at a Q&A once uh, and we asked a, a, a Christian person, uh, how would they feel if they got to the end of their life uh, they rocked up a judgment day and realised that there actually wasn't a judgment day, that they were completely wrong about Christianity uh, and it just wasn't true. And his answer uh, was, well, that's okay because I would have lived a good moral life. And I want to suggest that that is the stupidest answer in the entire world for a Christian to respond to like that. 
Because if we get to the end and discover that Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, that it wasn't a thing, then our entirety of our lives, the things we sacrificed for, the things that we worked towards, are completely dumb. We could have just been living up and doing our own thing. What a complete waste of time. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. If Christ was not raised, then we have no assurance that our sins have been forgiven. No assurance that the eternal life that he promises those who believe in him is even possible. And yet, because Jesus raised from the dead, we can be certain of it ourselves. It tells us that our sins have been dealt with. When God brings Christ back from the death, uh, from dead to life, it's almost like he's put a stamp of approval on the sin-killing deed that Jesus did. And so Paul's point here is that without the resurrection, we have no hope. But with it, we have the greatest hope available. That the final judgment of our sins will not be held against us. That we'll not just avoid God's wrath, but we'll receive his blessing. We'll be made like him, given resurrection life. No more to suffer death or pain or crying or sickness. And instead, dwell in the new creation with him as our God in perfect harmony forever. The stakes are high, aren't they? And the importance of the resurrection then is massive. But let me level with you at this point, because I think I know what we're all thinking. Our universal experience of dead people is that they stay dead. And so when we talk about the resurrection, we can't help but be a little sceptical. I think that's quite reasonable, in fact. That's, that's, that's very human. And so the question we need to ask then is, is there sufficient reason for the resurrection that would overturn our reasonable scientific expectation that people don't rise from the dead? And I want to suggest that there is. There's actually quite a lot of good, compelling reasons and evidences and arguments, but we only have time to go through one, and so I've chosen the main one, the one that we see in the Bible, which also happens to be in the passage, and that's this. There were witnesses to the resurrected Jesus. And we saw that in verses 5 to 8, didn't we? Six separate incidents where the resurrected Christ was seen. They occurred in different places at different times with a different number of people and different kinds of people. And so legally speaking, this is, a, this is a watertight argument. You can't get out of the fact that what these people saw must have happened. Let me give you an example of that. So I want you to imagine that, you know, come the end of this, this, this talk and we kind of do the fair forms and get our hot cross buns, we kind of wander out the door and then somebody wanders down past you, just standing there munching away, and they say, you will not believe this. I just saw a gorilla in the ref, a real live gorilla. Now, you're thinking a couple of things at that point. You're just like, all right, this guy's pranking me. Um, there's a person maybe from Prosh in a gorilla suit. Don't know. They kind of dress up weirdly sometimes. That's just what they do. Oh, I know what it was. It was an engineer. They were, they were mistaken. <laughs> Keep munching away. A second person comes along. You will not believe what I've just seen in the ref. A real live gorilla. You're like, mm, definitely an engineer. Um, but, but, but then what happens is this stream of people just starts coming through. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, a hundred people, two hundred people, three, four, five hundred people stream past saying, You will never believe what I've just seen in the ref, a real live gorilla. I don't think at that point there is any room for doubt. You are now at that point where you're just like, you know what? I can't imagine why. I don't know who brought the, thing, the flipping thing in, but, but, but there's a gorilla in the ref. I don't even need to see it. I mean, I'm going to go check it out because that'll be interesting, but it is kind of beyond a shadow of a doubt. And that is the sort of proof that Paul is levelling here for the resurrection. In a straight reading, it should just cinch the deal. But people still raise objections, so let's, let's think about some of them. Some people will say, well, hang on, no, no, they, they were just hallucinating. 
But the problem with hallucinations is that they are private experiences that medically we know have only been uh, kind of certain people are susceptible to. And so the fact that Jesus appeared to 500 people all at the same time rules out that possibility. It's not like he was kind of in a shaded booth and one by one they came in. He was there and they're all there. Hallucinations, they're just not simply a group phenomenon. Well, others then say, well, obviously it's a prank, right? Just like the gorilla, they, they made it up. But that sort of conspiracy becomes increasingly unlikely when you take into account just how many people witnessed it. It's hard enough to keep a secret with two or three of your best friends, right? Put 500 randoms together, that thing isn't going to last very long. Add to that the fact that the people at the core of Jesus' ministry, every single one of them except one, a guy called John, was martyred. They were killed for what they believed. And not one of them recanted and said, no, they were wrong or they were making it up. Very unlikely that it was a prank. And so the only explanation left for us then, I think, if we're trying to wiggle our way out of the reality of the resurrection, is that these people were tricked or exceptionally gullible. But I don't think that we can buy that. Because ancient people were just as sceptical as modern people. Now, I know we don't tend to think of that. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, warns us of something uh, called chronological snobbery, the idea that just because we're further along in history and we know how to make powdered milk and, and microscopes and stuff means that we're totally smarter than the guys who came before us. And so we know what's going on, but they were just going to be hoodwinked really simply. Uh, but the reality is that these guys lived death more than we ever have. Like, how many funerals have you been to in your lifetime? If you've had a really bad trot, five or six, these guys were seeing death every day. They knew what death was. They knew what life was. And more than that, the Bible actually records scepticism. It records moments of doubt, both in Matthew and in Luke. It is honest about people going, oh, I don't think that's going to happen. That, that, that's not something that happens. Uh, you might have heard of a doubting Thomas. It comes from the scriptures. Thomas refused to believe the witness of even his closest friends. He said, no, there is not a gorilla out there, despite the fact that everyone creamed through. He just said no, until eventually he himself saw Jesus and he fell down on his knees and worshipped. And Paul's appeal here, as he lists all of these evidences for Jesus' resurrection in the passage, is basically this. Verse 6, some of these people are still alive. So if you think this is ridiculous, that there's a gorilla in the ref, that somebody has come back from the dead, go and talk to the people who saw them. Go and talk to the people who were there. There is no escaping the fact that 500 people, most of whom are still alive, who knew that he was dead, who knew that he was buried, saw him alive again. And so despite the fact that it seems outlandish, it seems to me that on an initial appraisal, the most logical conclusion as far as the witnesses to the resurrection go is that it actually happened. And let me tell you, that is good news for us sinners that's so good that deserves a second public holiday, doesn't it? Because it means that there is now a way of salvation open to us in the person and work of Jesus that wasn't before. So those are the two key truths of Christianity, the two key truths that Easter celebrates. He died for our sins and he was raised by God to new life. That is the Christian gospel. What do we do with that? Well, I want to challenge you now to respond to it. And I think there are only two ways that you can respond to the Christian gospel. You either receive it or you reject it. Uh, in terms of receiving it, you see it there in verse 1. 
Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. What does it mean to receive the gospel? Well, we're given some hints in the passage there, at least three. You take your stand on it. Um, what else does it say? You hold firmly to it. Um, and then you pass on it as of first importance. And so what we're kind of starting to see here is that this isn't just kind of mere intellectual assent. This is something that has so gripped a person's life that they have oriented their life all the way around it. So what does it mean to believe in the Son of God, to believe in the Christian gospel? It's to throw yourself on the mercy of God that he offers to you in Jesus. To confess your sinful rejection of him, that you've moved him out of the center and put yourself in there. To accept his forgiveness and then reorient your life in such a way that it reflects the way that God would have you live. You put God back at the center your life now describes and represents and reflects the things that he would have you do. That's what it is to receive. The second thing that you could do is you could reject the gospel. Now, I want you to notice here that as I've set this up, this is binary, right? There isn't like a middle ground where you can say, oh, that's so nice for you and good for you. You either reject it or you receive it. Christianity and its response is binary because Jesus was binary. He tells us in John 14:6 that he is the only way to God. And if he's the only way to salvation, then to not receive him is to reject him. And that's really important to wrap our heads around. None of us come to the Christian gospel as neutral. We don't just kind of go, okay, well, I could swing this way or that way. Every single one of us comes to God through the gospel as sinners. And so to choose to not respond to the gospel or even just to sit on the fence and just kind, of, just kind of float there, is a choice for the status quo, which is a choice to persist in disobedience. It's to continue to choose sin over your rightful ruler, God. To continue in sin, to remain in death, to remain a rebel and an enemy. And so it's only in receiving, as you believe the gospel, that you can find life and forgiveness. Those are the two responses. You receive or you reject. So with that in mind, I want to leave us with two challenges, things to think about as we head into the Easter season. The two challenges are this, conversion and conversation. And because conversion scary, we'll do that one second. We'll just start with conversation. Let's talk about conversation. There was a time, I think, back maybe 30 years ago, where there was enough people in our Christianized society in Australia that we sort of understood Christianity, we sort of knew concepts like sin and God and Jesus. Uh, and we could have a, just a talk like this, it's 25 minutes, uh, and you could go, you know what, that makes entire sense. Things have finally clicked for me. I've got it. I'm jumping on board. But things have changed, I think. What's happened is biblical literacy, that's the technical term, has gone down. And most people don't actually really know what the Bible says, uh, let alone how it describes our world. And so hearing some of these things today might be entirely new for you. And that's okay. That's completely fine. In fact, there's a lot of things in here that's going to take a lot of time to process. Some things that I've said that will have implications. Things that I've said that you will have questions, objections to. Things that you want to talk through. And what I want to suggest is that's okay. One of the things that we are keen for at the Christian Union is open conversations where your eyes are wide open, where you are never manipulated and pushed or forced or coerced into a particular action or way of thinking. We want you to read the scriptures, come to know the gospel and choose it of your own accord, which means that you can walk out the door at any time. But what I hope you see is that in this passage, the things that it talks about, 
that Jesus died, that Jesus rose again, are of first importance and therefore merit at least some investigation. See, Christianity, it has a long pedigree. It's been going for 2,000 years, and we're starting, we're, like, we're starting to lose count of the amount of people over the course of those 2,000 years who've said Christianity is dying and it's about to get wiped out. We're cockroaches, man. We just keep coming back. And the reason we do so is because we're actually founded on something true. The Bible, most sold book in the history of the world, the most shoplifted book in the history of the world. And that suggests to me that it's least at worth a conversation. So one of the things that we have floating around at the CU are these little booklets called Mark Uncover. It's basically just one of the books of the Bible. makes it look shiny and nicer. Uh, and it's a gospel of Jesus. It describes his life. And so if you're interested and you want to have a conversation, then let us know. And we will find somebody to sit down with you and read this with you. Have an opportunity to write it down in your feedback form a little bit later. Um, and you can ask all the questions you want. You can say the most offensive things that you need to say. Ask the most tricky questions. That's what we want. Because it'll help us grow, but it'll also help you work out whether or not this is actually legit. Whether or not when you celebrate Easter, it's not two days of Netflix, but two days of absolute staggering awe at what God has done for you. So if you're keen, we'll find somebody to help you read and ask the questions because we think it matters. So that's the first of the two challenges, conversation. The second challenge is conversion. Now, that's a scary word. That's a cult word, right? Uh, but I just want you to observe just quite quickly, none of us are wearing robes, none of us are chanting, um, so, so don't, don't be worried about that. Um, but, but it's an aptly chosen word, even though it's a scary word. Because to convert is to, to move from one position to another. You know, people come talk about, I was converted from my dieting experiences, I used to think this and, and then this. It, what it is, is it's to cut ties with the things that you used to believe and do and then start believing and doing other things. And so what that means when it comes to Christianity is not weird. It's not like, okay, you have to stop eating oranges and, and, and wear crocs around the place. And I don't know what you kind of pull up in your mind when you think kind of Christian conversion. But what it is, is it is a turning of your life away from sin and selfishness to the love of God and people in the way that he would have you live. Now, the reason I'm throwing this on the table, particularly now that I've just said that, you know, these are a lot of new concepts and so some people really need to stop and process, is because for some of you, it is not new. In fact, for some of you, you may even think that you're a Christian, but you've never actually turned from sin. You've just kind of assumed that because you grew up in a Christian family or, or because you go to church, that this must be a real reality for you. But there's a difference between knowing it and understanding it and being familiar with it and actually believing it. And so for some of you, the challenge will not be to your head. This makes sense. You get it. You might even know it to be true. But with your heart, have you repented? Has it actually shaped your life? Have you acknowledged your sin? Because if you haven't, you have the opportunity today to receive forgiveness and eternal life and remove forever the fear of judgment. Because this is the Christian gospel that we celebrate at Easter. Jesus died, he rose again, so that instead of suffering death, you might receive life. And that's good news, isn't it? That's not just worth two public holidays. That's worth an eternity of public holidays. And that's what God gives us in the gospel. And so as I finish, if you'd like to take that opportunity, then after the service, come and find one of us, the friend that brought you and others see you, come talk to me. We will gladly help you make that step.